Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's good news for all of us imperfect people. I'm Jeff Ebert, and my hope is that this podcast will draw you closer to Christ through a richer understanding of the Bible, and specifically this season through the Gospel of John. And so this is season one, episode 17, and we're into John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. As we get ready to dive into the text, let me just remind you that if you'd like to financially support this podcast, you can find out how to do that in the episode description. Uh, If you become a supporter, and as a thank you, I'll email you a copy of the script for each weekly episode. But you have to email me so I have your email address. The easiest way to do that is to reach me through my website, jeffebert.com. So we spent four weeks in chapter 5, which starts with a healing, followed by a long discourse by Jesus on his identity as God's Messiah. And as I thought about why Jesus made that very public declaration of his divinity, it reminded me of an old expression that came from the era of uh, sailing ships, you know, battling each other on the high seas, like in the 17 and 1800s. The expression was, nailing your colors to the mast. In that age, ships out at the ocean used to communicate with each other through various flags, and the most important flag being their national flag. If a ship was losing the battle and if the captain wanted to surrender, he would order that the flag be lowered. Lowering the flag was a sign of defeat. On the other hand, if the captain was determined to fight on to the last man, no retreat, no surrender, he would order that the flag be nailed to the mast as a defiant refusal. And so in common parlance today, to nail your colors to the mast means to state your opinion regardless of the consequences. And in a sense, I think that's what Jesus was doing in chapter 5. He nailed his colors to the mast with this very public pronouncement of his divinity, very clear. It was an in-your-face challenge to the religious leaders who opposed him. And now there was no turning back for Jesus, no retreat, no surrender. He knew he was headed for the cross. So let's see what happens next. Here's John 6, verses 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. And another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up, Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed those to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves, left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. 
Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You know, we are almost two years into this pandemic and people just seem to be stretched so thin. I get the sense that people are just done. I mean, they're just done with it. Overwhelmed, weary. I mean, you all know what I mean. We just need for this weirdness to be over, but it's not. And so all that pressure of masking and unmasking and all the rest, it continues to weigh heavily upon us. Plus, we're confronted with the needs of the larger world around every corner. The economy, threats of war in the Ukraine, domestic and international terrorists, political corruption, drugs, addictions, hunger, poverty, the continuing cultural slide toward the sleazy and the degrading. It just goes on and on. I mean, the needs and the demands are so great, we can feel powerless to meet them all. The needs are so great, the temptation is just to withdraw into our little cloisters, to hibernate away in our dens, just stream Netflix as a means of filling the void. It is just easier to withdraw because we feel so inadequate for the task of engaging the world around us. And I think Jesus' disciples felt that same way. Surrounded by more than 5,000 people, they did not know how to meet the vast need that faced them. The problem just seemed to be too big. Jesus asked them to figure this thing out, and their response was, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. They were simply overwhelmed by the enormity of the task that Jesus had given them. So what's going on here? It's so important because all four gospel writers include this story in their narrative of Jesus. All four Gospels include it. But there is a major difference between the Gospel of John and the other three Gospels. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they seem to focus largely upon Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And for a two-year period, they follow him in his healing and teaching ministry there. But John selects only two miracles out of that entire two-year period. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the next miracle that we'll look in the next episode, Jesus walking on water to meet his disciples during the storm. All four Gospels record these two miracles, and John's selection of these particular incidents indicates there's something extremely important about them. And as we'll see at the end of chapter 6, Jesus' words to the multitude on this occasion about bread gives the first hint of his approaching death. We're told that this event took place near the time of the Passover. So this happened in the spring when the hills would be green with grass. The story is pretty straightforward. A crowd follows Jesus after he crossed the Sea of Galilee. They followed Jesus everywhere he went because they dare not miss, you know, the thrill, the tremendous excitement of witnessing one of the signs, which he did. Jesus was now feeling the pressure of the crowds, and he just wanted to get away for a time to be alone with his disciples. According to the other Gospels, they had also been ministering from town to town, had seen the power of God manifested through themselves, and so they all needed some time alone to process what they had experienced. So they got into a boat to go across the northern end of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern shore. But as I said, the multitudes did not give up. As the boat left across the lake, the people began to run along the northern shore to get to where they saw the boat was going. Jesus and his disciples arrived first and went up on the hillside together, but as Jesus watched, he could see the crowd coming along the shore. The sea is only about four miles wide, so the people just walked around. 
because they could see where he was going. And eventually they gathered at the foot of the hills and they had no food. Jesus's response was to do something for them. And what follows is reported in a very matter-of-fact way, you know, with no embellishment. I mean, you think John would make a bigger deal out of this. You know, Jesus did most of his miracles in private or with only a small handful of disciples, but not this one. This one was witnessed by at least 5,000 men, meaning there could have been additional women and children in the throng. There are no other miracles as public as this one. And because it is so public and so dramatic, it kind of took Jesus's reputation to a whole new level. The miracle is the most significant because it is really an object lesson for what Jesus teaches later on in chapter 6 when he identifies himself as the bread of life. The miracle lays the groundwork for that important title and description of his life and ministry, and we're going to look at that in two weeks. But for now, this crowd is a big problem. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment, an opportunity to test the faith level and leadership skills of his disciples. Now, they had all been with him for two years, and it's time for kind of their midterm examination. They had seen the mighty power of God demonstrated again and again through Jesus and had by this point been sent out on their own short-term mission trips and had come back with great stories of how God had worked through them. So now they are all together again, and Jesus first turns to Philip possibly because Philip was from this area, Bethsaida. This was his backyard. He knew the territory. He knew there's no village. There were no stores nearby, no markets. And they had very little money besides. So Jesus' question is clearly designed to set before Philip a predicament that had no human solution. And Philip, he was a practical guy. He was sensible. He was a by-the-numbers, always concerned with the bottom line kind of guy. Good guy to have on the finance committee, I guess. He felt things always needed to add up. Jesus starts talking about catering this big event, and the wheels just begin to spin spin in his brain. He's going, cha-ching, ka-ching. You know, his conclusion was even if they could find food, it would cost more than eight months' pay to feed this crowd. Jesus, it's not in the budget. It's impossible, Jesus. Send them away. They're on their own. Not in the budget. Man, how many times did I hear that during my years of church ministry? How often does the church miss great opportunities for Christ because of an unwillingness to risk? We have to set our goals, plan our strategies. We think of committees and teams and organization and fundraising. And the result of all that is, in fact, oftentimes very little gets done. We forget that as disciples, we're sent to the world as a church to begin where we are with what we have and then trust him to meet our needs as a venture of faith. But we let our problems become bigger than our God, and we put limits on what we think God can do. I mean, I've done it too, so let's not be too critical of Philip or finance committees. He's a lot like us. When faced with problems, our first thought is usually to look at our own abilities, our own resources. So often we treat God as kind of the safety valve. If our plan doesn't work out, You know, our first thought should be to turn to Jesus, instinctively turn to him, not as an afterthought, but to turn to him immediately. The one who has helped so often in the past, our first impulse should be to go to the Lord, to trust him and not panic. You know, remembering uh, verses like Philippians 4.19, my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a lot of Philip in all of us. And then there's Andrew. 
There is not a lot of faith in his response, but there's a little. Andrew believes Jesus can do something. He doesn't know what Jesus will do, but he knows Jesus will do something. And remember, Andrew's the one who's always been bringing people to Jesus, starting back in chapter 1 when he first brought Simon Peter to Jesus. Here, Andrew had been busy. He was checking out the crowd. And as John describes what happens, many commentators actually think the phrase John uses here would be better translated as kind of a Scottish expression. He did not say, as this account reads, that there is a boy here. But he actually, John uses the diminutive tense when he referred to both the boy and the fish. And so what he said was, Lord, there's a wee laddie here, and he has five loaves of bread and two wee fishes. That was about all he could find in the crowd. And given his makeup, you can be sure he had checked out every possibility in the throng, and this was all he could come up with. The boy did not have much to bring. Five little barley loaves, two small fish. They were probably these little pickled fish from Galilee that were well-known all over the Roman Empire. They were kind of famous, and pickling was one of the only ways to preserve fish at that time. And as he ran out the back door that morning, his mom probably said, don't forget your pickled fish. It was the little boy's sack lunch for the day. Now, good thing it just didn't happen today, because the boy might have had a peanut butter sandwich, and people with allergies would start complaining. Or they'd want to know if the bread was gluten-free. I'm not sure Jesus would even be able to perform this miracle today with all the food restrictions people have. Anyway, the point is the boy offers what he has. If you can use it, take it, Jesus. This was a beautiful gesture on the part of a boy. He doesn't know what Jesus will do, but he brings the raw material of faith and he puts it in Jesus' hands. This is really what following Jesus is all about. What is placed in Jesus' hands suddenly becomes more than sufficient. Suddenly what's offered is transformed, like the water to wine or like the feeble legs of the paralyzed man. Now the loaves and the fish. What is offered to Jesus, what is entrusted to him, becomes more than sufficient. Think about that for a moment. That is all Jesus needs. Just give Jesus what you already have. Just give him what you already have. Don't pine away about the gifts and talents you don't have. Take an honest inventory of the talents and the skills and the passions you already have and just offer those to Christ and he will turn it into opportunities for ministry. Jesus never asks us to start accumulating more before we begin. All he wants us to do is what we have right now. More might come later. But start with who you are right now and the talents and interests you have right now. Offer those to Jesus and see what opportunities for ministry will come your way. And also, you can look at it this way. What do we withhold from the hands of Christ? What are we holding back? What are we holding on to for ourselves? What are we not releasing? What is it we think we're trying to protect by keeping it to ourselves? You know, our children, we have to give them to the Lord. Our finances, You have to give your financial security to Christ because you're a steward and not an owner. Our relationships, can we actually trust him with the people in our lives? Our future, is it secure with him? I mean, do we really think we can do a better job on our own without the Lord? I mean, practically speaking, yes, we do it all the time. And consequently, we bring so much stress and anxiety into our lives because we are not sufficient in and of ourselves. We need to entrust everything into the strong hands of Christ. Surrender it all to Jesus. Give him what you have. That's all he asks, and that's all he needs. 
because he will supply all the rest. Now the miracle of multiplication. I mean, I love the simplicity of Jesus's actions. We've seen this before in the account of changing water into wine. There's no razzmatazz, no special pleading, no incantations, no dramatic crying out to God, no grandstanding. There is merely the simple taking of the bread and the fish and lifting his eyes, Jesus giving thanks to the Father as he would for any meal. Jesus offers a prayer of thanksgiving. And wow, wouldn't you like him to come and bless your Thanksgiving table? I mean, you talk about leftovers. I think Jesus already knew what he was going to do here before he even got the disciples involved. And I find comfort in that because we're confused, we're uncertain, we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off, and he is way ahead of us. He already knows the end from the beginning, but Jesus doesn't proceed alone. He gives the disciples a command in verse 10, have the people sit down. They still didn't know what he was going to do, but they obeyed him. Their faith might have been a little shaky, but they still obeyed. And that's key because Christ's blessing often comes through the channel of obedience. We don't have to know it all, but we do need to obey Jesus in what is already clear. In what you already know, obey him and the rest will come into focus, usually just at the right time. I've often wondered just when or how the miracle of multiplication took place. Did Jesus you know, place all the fish and bread in a basket and send the disciples out with little amounts of it to distribute? And then as people reached into the baskets, it kept increasing? Or did he heap it up in a great big pile and then send them out to distribute that? I mean, how did he do it? Well, this is where it's important to let Scripture interpret itself. And if we look carefully at Mark's account of this story in his gospel, we find that Mark tells us how Jesus did it. Mark says that Jesus blessed and broke the bread. That's Mark 6.41. And then he uses what is called the aorist tense, which is to say it was a single action never repeated. That was the, the, um, the call to, bl- to be blessed and then to break. But then Mark uses the imperfect tense in the next phrase. It says, he kept on giving to his disciples. In other words, the miracle took place in our Lord's hands. As he held the simple meal in his hands, he would break off pieces and give it to his disciples, and he would just keep doing that like a magician pulling uh, scarves out of his sleeve, I guess. There was never an increase in the amount in his hand, but there was always a continual supply until the whole multitude of 5,000 men plus undoubtedly you know, thousands more women and children were fed. There could have been 10,000 people in that great crowd. We're not told the total number, but everybody ate and they weren't given the bare minimum. This was not like an airline meal where there's, you know, barely anything on the plastic plate. The text says they ate their fill. Other texts say they had enough. Jesus provided abundantly and nobody went home hungry. Then in line with the orderliness of God, our Lord commanded the disciples to clean up the place save all the fragments and police the ground so that nothing was left to litter the landscape that God had made. Always leave it better than you found it. That's a good motto for camping and hiking and also outdoor Jesus festivals, I guess. Take care of God's earth. And according to the account, they filled 12 baskets with the remaining fragments. Now, there have been many attempts to try and explain this miracle on purely rational grounds. 
the classic liberal approach that discounts anything miraculous in the Gospels, has said, well, this was a miracle of sharing, that as Jesus was teaching the people, you know, he so moved them that they abandoned their selfish habits and shared with uh, their own families and with others the lunch that they had brought with them, so that there proved to be plenty for everybody, that they had actually had food hidden under their cloaks, and they felt moved by Jesus to share what they had with others. And how sweet is that? But that's not what it says. The word about Andrew scouting the crowd to find anybody with food kind of puts that argument to rest. And the circumstances also show that this crowd kind of spontaneously followed Jesus around the lake and would never have found time to go back home, pack a lunch, and then join the parade. When they saw Jesus leaving, they immediately ran around the north side of the lake to follow him. And there were no towns or markets nearby. Another suggestion that this was really a miracle of sublimation, or sublimation, I'm sorry, meaning that Jesus' teaching was so marvelous, people just forgot about food, and they went home saying, oh, that was so great, he fed us so full, I'm not even hungry. Now, I guess that can happen. I mean, I can get involved with a project or something that's so engaging and interesting that, you know, I could forget about eating, not often. I rarely skip a meal unless I'm purposely fasting, but it could happen. I don't think that happened here. Because as the little girl said when this was taught to her in Sunday school, then what did they put in the 12 baskets? That's a good question. C.S. Lewis writes that this was a miracle of the old creation. The old creation. That's a phrase that means that as as he did when he changed the water to wine, Jesus simply short-circuited something that happens regularly within the sphere of nature, but over a longer period of time so that happened in an instant. Wheat multiplies in fields and makes it possible for a continuing supply of bread to uh, come as it's ground and baked. Fish multiply in the sea, and that process of nature keeps a plentiful supply of fish available all the time for the markets of the world. Though it included human effort and human preparation, Lewis suggests that by the creative power of the Father at work in him, our Lord just circuited that whole process and wrote in small letters instantly what is already written in large letters across the whole panorama of nature. That may well have been what happened here. Whatever was the explanation of it, it was the Father at work in the Son. And notice the effect Jesus' action had upon the crowd. Obedience leads to involvement. Christ fed the multitude through the disciples, and bread could have just appeared in all these circles of people. Bread could have rained from heaven like manna in the wilderness. I mean, God did that for 40 years for the Israelites, but not here. The disciples became the distributors of his grace. So what a privilege for them. Between Christ and the people, there is room for others who will give service in his name. And that's what ministry is all about. Jesus gives the disciples the bread and fish. They give it to the crowd. Here we see the great calling on all believers is actually to pass on to others what the Lord has given to us. That's really the stewardship life principle. It's really a discipleship principle to take what God has given you and you just pass it on. God keeps giving. His abundance doesn't run out. But you cannot give away what you do not have. It's got to happen to you before it can happen through you. And if you are filled up with Christ, ministry will spill over. A vessel overflows. If you are fully connected to Christ, 
offering what you have to him in obedience, you're ready to serve him, he will overflow through your life onto the lives of others. It will happen naturally because you just can't contain it. That's the idea, That's why the idea of being a Christian but having no sense of ministry or, or no involvement in any kind of ministry, it's really a very anemic type of faith experience. What happens to you should be passed on to others. You're not the last link in the chain. We see that attitude way too much in the church, especially churches that are dying. You know, I got mine. I got my relationship with Jesus. And then that's where it stops. That is just sad and tragic. How futile. How much does that attitude completely miss the mark of what Jesus actually wants for his followers? Take what you're given and pass it on. You're to be a conduit of his grace to others. If you just keep it for yourself, eventually it's going to go sour. Giving away to others is actually what keeps your own faith fresh. Let me say that again. Giving away to others in some kind of ministry is actually what keeps your own faith fresh. So pass God's grace onto others this week. Pass it on. And with Christ, there's always an abundance. Twelve baskets left. All right, let me just summarize. This miracle teaches us that we can trust God with impossible problems. When we feel we're inadequate, we are, but he's not. When we feel we've run out of steam, we have, but he hasn't. When we are at our wit's end and we don't know what to do, he does. Just give him what you have and he will multiply it with our obedience. Our impossible situations give God the opportunity he needs to work his will in our lives. God has the abundance. Give yourselves to him. Respond with obedience. He's working through us, through you, through our stewardship of his grace. You know, when faced with impossible situations, there are usually three responses. First, some people become intimidated. They do nothing because of fear. The problem is too big. The problem paralyzes. They're afraid of failure. They're afraid of criticism. They're afraid of the cost, uh, afraid they won't get the credit, afraid it won't be perfect. Whatever the fear, the problem overpowers and they're intimidated. Second, people become frustrated. The situation gets you upset, but where the intimidated person is silenced, the frustrated person complains and vents and blames and is all agitated, lets all the negative emotions build and build and build. There's a churning inside as they replay the situation over and over again in their minds, re-energize all those negative emotions again and again. And in doing so, they just lose any creativity, any ability to come up with a solution because the tension blocks the flow of faith. That's the frustrated person. And third, not intimidated or frustrated, but faith motivated. You turn to the Lord. You know his power. You believe his word. Like Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It's a good verse to memorize if you haven't already. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You know, we haven't even begun to figure out what our real strengths are. I mean, when Christ gets hold of your life. When Christ, through the indwelling spirit in your heart, releases energy and imagination within you when he gives you the power to dare to risk, to take a step with boldness, believing that today's impossibilities are tomorrow's breakthroughs, that's what God can do in our lives. The disciples looked at the crowd and felt overwhelmed. You know, it's not your responsibility to fix everything in the world and all the world's problems. It is not your responsibility to fix every person you know 
or to fix every situation you face. But in every situation, it is our responsibility to respond in faith and to at least be open to how God might use us. We give the Lord what we have. Jesus will take what we offer and multiply it. And as we obey, we become a channel of blessing to others. Just as the disciples couldn't turn the bread and the fish into a feast, you're not able to do it on your own. We can't minister out of our own selves. But with Christ, with Christ, look out. You'll see his abundance. So pass along God's grace to someone else this week. Have a good one.